dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in God's country crops far as I can see headlights on both ends of my day this country life is for me ride with us HPJ ride with us Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer M. Latsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. So my week started off interesting. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, There was a community meeting, actually two community meetings, about water and Quivira National Wildlife Refuge, and... uh, let me just tell you, nothing is more, nothing's more tentative than covering a um, a meeting with very like 350 concerned citizens over the course of these two meetings. And by concerned citizens, there was a there was a police presence in the back of the room. Nice. You know, my dad says whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting, mm-hmm. and um, folks are not happy. So, let's give you a little bit of background of what happened. Where's Quivira National Wildlife Refuge at? Or Good question. You say it? <laughs> so Quivira National Wildlife Refuge is in Stafford County, Kansas, which is just outside of Hutchinson. Think south central part of the state. And the central part of the state, a little bit towards the south. Now, it's a, it's a big place for migratory birds. It's a stopover for them. And uh, Quivira has been around in some shape or form or another since 1957, 56 or so. Well, let's let's go back to what happened here. So the Kansas Department of Agriculture's Division of Water Resources, um, the chief engineer there, he's been kind of in a tough spot the last six years because Quivira, as a senior water rights holder in the state of Kansas, has said for the last six years that its water rights are being impeded by junior water rights holders. So in Kansas, doesn't matter who you are, if you have junior water rights to somebody else, um, older, quote unquote, more senior than you down the line, if you're impeding on that senior water rights um, use, there has to be a plan in place for you to stop or to slow down your impediment. Now, Quivira has been patient for six years as the local groundwater management district has been working towards a plan. And every one of those plans was not satisfactory to the Kansas statutes, according to the chief engineer. So picture six years of locals trying to do something in good faith, not ever coming up with something that was exactly right. And the chief engineer's hands are tied because by statute, he has to do something. He has to address the situation. Got that picture in your mind, Kayleen? Yeah. Yeah, so... uh, No wonder they needed a police presence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, um, what's basically happening here is these junior water rights holders are are pumping groundwater. Now, are the junior water rights people, are they farmers and ranchers, or who are these people that have these? They are farmers and ranchers. Um, There's a lot of irrigation wells. There's a lot of livestock wells. We're going to speak later on in the podcast with a producer who actually raises pigs and um, uses water for pigs and cattle and and his crops 
but there's a lot of livestock in Stafford County. There's a lot of crops in, in Stafford County. Picture it this way. It is like 90% of its economic base is agriculture. There's very little else in that county. There's a little bit of oil production. That was going to be my next question. Is there any oil or gas production that they need water for? Yep. There's a little bit of oil production, but um, when you're looking at the economics and the tax base of that county, it is agriculture. Mm -hmm. So here's the other thing that comes into that is that comes into play is when the chief engineer is part of his response is to create a plan that will, um, let's see, what do they call it? They say, He sends out letters of administration. These letters basically tell water rights holders in the zone around Quivera that they're going to have to reduce pumping by a percentage of their allotments by January 1st. That Those letters went out in September, and that's a little under three months for people to start making changes before their water gets drastically reduced. That's not enough time no. for these guys. And KDA sends out letters saying that we're going to have this meeting. We're going to talk over what's exactly in this plan. The meeting's scheduled for Monday. The Friday before, Senator Moran has a sit-down powwow with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and exacts a promise from them that they will not press the issue for a while. No timeline yet as to when they're going to bring this back up and say, hey, we're, our water rights are still impeded, but they're at least allowing a little bit of a breathing space for locals to get together and work on a plan that's acceptable to everybody. So that's where we're at. I'm not going to lie. It was a tense meet, couple of meetings, Kayleen. Yeah, I kind of imagine. What, what were the locals saying during the meetings? Well, I will say this. They did not allow microphones um, so there were no microphones in the room for people to stand up and ask questions. Instead, questions were supposed to be written down on note cards, and KDA collected those note cards, and then those questions were asked of the panel. And the panel consisted of KDA folks, um, Assistant Secretary of Agriculture, a local person who's working with the Groundwater Management District. So, yeah, the, the local response was not happy. I mean, they're. The I couldn't imagine them being very happy about it. The folks are just—they're in a rock and a hard place. Yeah. They understand that that Kansas law does not take into account agriculture interests over municipal interests over wildlife interests. None of those matter. It's just purely first and right, first in line, first in time, first in line. Mm -hmm. So, and Quivera has senior water rights to ninety-seven percent of the of the whole of the water rights holders in the zone around it, this impediment zone. So yeah, it's gonna affect most of Stafford County in some form or another. Now, you know, the chief engineer and, and his staff have tried to create a plan that, um, that manages to add water. They've got an augmentation plan in place that will pump water from wells outside of the impediment zone and put it into Quivira's Wells, which is basically Robin Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. Um, but evidently, hydrologically and hydrogeologically, however you want to call that, it works. But you're still filling something. You're still filling a glass that has so many straws in it that you can't ever possibly catch up to yeah. that. So the straws have to start slowing down. Yeah, it's it's tough. Well, it just seems like one more thing that these farmers are going to have to deal with. They have low commodity prices. They have the trade war. They have all this other stuff to deal with. Mm -hmm. 
and then they're getting dumped on one more thing that they have to cut their water use down it just seems like when is it going to end well and you know what most of them you know speaking with brian again most of them are already doing things that are uh helping them save water yeah simply because it costs to run irrigation pumps. Oh, yeah. It Every, costs a lot of money to run yeah, irrigation to pull <laughs> To pull water up out of the ground is not a cheap thing. So you want to make the most out of every single drop that you're pulling up out of the ground. These guys know that. They've, they've switched from flood irrigation to center pivot irrigation. They have drop nozzles on those center pivots now. Um, a lot of talk was done about end gun, end gun use on center pivots. And for some... That should be the answer. Just ban end guns and we should be okay. Well, the problem is, is you could ban the end gun use on those center pivots, but are you actually saving water or are you putting more through the drop nozzles? There's there's not really a, a way to quantify that so much, according to the chief engineer. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure working together, there's a, a solution there somewhere, but, you know, we, we've got better hybrids now. They're using less water, but they're expensive. Yeah. You know, seed's expensive. We've got better technologies that allow us to apply the water in a very concentrated fashion, but those are expensive. So no matter where you come from, farmers are still going to carry the cost of whatever's happening. And, and like Brian said, look, the wildlife were there long before Quivira was a refuge. They were, long, they were there long before, I mean, the migratory birds have been there for eons it seems that's why the refuge is there (laughs) yeah and he goes and and the irony of the situation he brought this up is um (laughs) the birds use the fields nearby as feeding ground yeah so they're feeding off of crops that were raised with water that may not be there tomorrow because the water needs to go to quivira to raise (laughs) <laughs> to raise um, uh, habitat for them. Yeah. Where Where do you go? I mean, what do you do? Yeah. And there was a lot of talk at that meeting. Is Quivira going to slow down its use of water? Are they being water conscious? And I don't think I ever really got a good solid answer on that. Yeah. As if what, I think what they, are their plans? They need to. I mean, if they're making the farmers cut back, they need to cut back as well. I think there are, there's a lot of, well, yeah, of course they're cutting back, but I, I, maybe I wasn't in on some of those conversations where I, I don't really feel like they have a a good grasp on if they're solid plan on what they're going to do to cut back on their water use and and that sort of thing. They probably feel as though that they've been patient for six years and feel like they're owed more than something. Well, it's Fish and Wildlife Service out of DC that's in charge of putting forth this complaint on behalf of Quivira Wildlife Refuge. So you've got DC people that just know that, look, we're, we're running out of water. And it's not just the amount of water, too. It's the quality of mm-hmm. water that's going there. Um, yeah, it's a salt marsh, <laughs> which is great. But you can't have water that has a lot of chlorine, uh, chlor, chlorides in it um, because it'll affect the the grasses that grow there, it'll, it'll adversely affect the, the whole refuge mm-hmm. and the, the ecological system there. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a nasty, nasty situation all around. And I hesitate to say this, but I'm, I'm going to say it. We're going to see more of things like this coming up, Kayleen. And oh, whether yeah. it's here, whether it's, I mean, we've seen water woes in the West for generations. Yeah. Since the first um, dams got put in and 
since the first irrigation ditches were dug in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I just think that these are going to get more and more prevalent. And the, the scary thing is, is water rules change from state to state to state. Oh, yeah. So what works in Kansas doesn't necessarily work the same way in Texas, doesn't necessarily work the same way in Nebraska and Colorado and this, that, and the other. But Western water, water rights are first in line, first in time. So. so, yeah, later on in the show, we're going to bring you interviews from that meeting in St. John. And we're going to try to explain what's going on at Quivira a little bit more and start a conversation among you, our listeners. And if you've got thoughts on this, please share them. Right, Kaylee? Yep. If you got a comment or a thought, you can drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know. Or you can always call us at the office, 1-800-452-7171. Or you can always comment on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. And if you like what you hear, do us a favor and head over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. In this week's episode, we'll bring you the stories you might have missed in the October 21st print edition. We're going to have those interviews from the KDA Quivira Water Meeting. And Kayleen's going to bring us the latest on grain markets, and then we'll have some final thoughts. So sit back, turn up that speaker, and thanks for riding with us on HPJ Talk. This week, Jenny brings us a cover story on keeping good help around, finding and retaining qualified labor is critical to the success of family farms. It takes time to recruit and train new employees, and turnover can actually cost a farm up to $90,000 per year in lost productivity and out-of-pocket costs. Managing employees takes some time, but it's worth it to the livestock and the bottom line. Inside, field editor Lacey Newland has a story on Kansas teacher Sherry Clevenger-Perry, using her title as 2019 Douglas County, Kansas Elite Ms. United States Agriculture to promote her platform of myth-busting ag education. On page six, editor Dave Bergmeier writes about big shoes to fill in his new role. Seymour clearly writes about Dunkin' Donuts making a new home at the USDA headquarters in D.C. And we'll have letters to the editor from Andrea Burns, Ford County Extension Director, and Kyle Reilly, a 4-H member of the DIY Juniors in Dodge City, discussing National 4-H Week. In the livestock section, Kayleen has a story about U.S.-Japan trade deal and the thoughts out of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, while Lacey Newland has OSU Cooperative Extension Livestock Marketing Specialist Daryl Peel talking about uncertainty in the cattle industry. If you have a response to something you've read or heard, or there's a local topic that you want to bring to the attention of our readers and listeners, Please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. Or you can call us at 1-800-452-7171. We want to hear from you. High Plains Journal has a crop of U events coming to a location near you this winter. Our first ever Cotton U will be December 5th, held with the Amarillo Farm and Ranch Show in Amarillo, Texas. Registration is limited to the first 150, so be sure to visit cottonu.net and reserve your seat today. And our Soil Health U and Trade Show is back for a third year, January 22nd and 23rd at the Tony's Pizza Event Center in Salina, Kansas. Early bird registration is just $75 until November 18th, so don't delay. 
You'll get three keynote speakers, more than 20 breakout sessions, and a two-day trade show where you can talk to businesses that can help you on your soil health journey. Visit www.soilhealthu.net and register today. Quivira impairment complaint may be on pause, but the issue is far from over. Senator Jerry Moran reached out to officials at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to secure a promise to hold off on filing yet another impairment complaint. But locals aren't quite sure how long that pause will be, and there's still a lot of work to be done to reach a compromise. Here's some conversations from the Kansas Department of Agriculture's Division of Water Resources meeting October 21st in St. John, Kansas. My name is David Barfield, and I'm Chief Engineer of the Division of Water Resources, Kansas Department of Agriculture. Well, this is an informational meeting uh, related to the Covira impairment uh, resolution. So Covira has, is a national wildlife refuge here in this part of the state. Uh, it has a very senior water right upstream. There's about 1,300 water rights that are interfering, that are intercepting water that's destined for the stream and therefore impairing uh, the refuge. So we've been working through a process for the last six years to investigate the matter and determine what to do. Uh, there's been a, an effort to find a sort of locally driven solution that didn't resolve it. And so um, this summer I announced that we would be uh, developing administrative orders to uh, reduce the use in the basin about 15% to stabilize stream flows as part of the remedy. Uh, obviously, that's a big concern here in the area because that's a significant production and it falls on people unevenly. So, so we, we sent out notices and this, this meeting was basically to uh, help explain what, what all that meant. Now, in the meantime, Friday, we get a, essentially a press release from Senator Moran's office that he's been talking to the, the Fish and Wildlife Service and Department of Interior in D.C. And rather than have us issue these orders, uh, restricting use. They want to provide an opportunity for the basin to, to try again to come up with a resolution. So, so we were sort of explaining that to people as well. What we tried to do in this meeting was explain that, you know, the realities of what's behind this, that impairment's still occurring, that we need to come up with a solution. So um, there's, a, there's a project uh, proposed by the local groundwater management district to build an augmentation project, which is another piece of the solution. So, so our, our message here was, let's get the augmentation project built and let's, let's try and come together and come up with a plan to address the, the reductions that need to be put in place. But we sort of have to wait for the Fish and Wildlife Service to sort of give us some direction in terms of what they want. So, so an augmentation project is where somebody's using water that is due to somebody else and you essentially get a source of water from somewhere else and bring it in to offset your depletion. So, so there's an area that's south of the refuge and outside of this area that's impairing that they want to essentially build a, a well field and pipe water the refuge to replace the irrigators' depletions. It's a very important part of the solution and one we're urging and supporting as we move forward. Again, the, the, the companion piece of that to stabilize stream flows or reductions, and that's really what, what we got to continue to find a way forward. Um, yeah, this just came up Friday, and uh, I reached out to the service this morning to try and find out more details, and we'll be continuing to work with them to, 
to, to basically let's let's get this done. This issue's been hanging over the basin for, for really decades now. And it's time to figure this out. And I, and I think the service will be anxious to sort of get it moving too. Okay, so David, you mentioned that it's going to be a, a combination of augmentation, which is bringing water in from some outside source and reduction in pumping. What would be the source for that augmented water? Where would we find that from? So there's an area south of the refuge that um, that isn't heavily that that doesn't have a lot of water use because the, the water underneath is of poor quality and isn't suitable for irrigation. So so the plan is to drill some 43 small shallow wells, low capacity, and just skim water, skim the fresher water off the top. And so it's a large enough area where they they believe they can get the 5,000 acre feet of augmentation capacity that's that's part of the solution here. Okay, and the other part was we, we have to reduce the, the pumping because that affects our stream flow and the quality of water. Um, maybe expand a little bit about why water quality is so important to Quivera Wildlife Refuge. Sure, it is a saltwater marsh, so they, they can take saline water, but just like any use of water, you have sort of a, a, a top limit that where poor quality water starts to interfere with an intended use. You know, they, they use water to, to create habitat, but they also use water to create forage for their birds that come through. And, and, and again, above a certain level, it's not usable to them. Now, you work for the Kansas Department of Agriculture, and a lot of the producers here today were, were one of the main questions was, why doesn't agriculture get the top billing in this? Why does, why does ag have to shut down the pumps? And maybe explain about first and right, first in time. Well, first of all, all uses of water are subject to these administration orders. If, if they were ever to move forward, you know, the story we're having now is we're not going to do that. But, but we're actually treating all users the same. So, so stock is reduced, municipals reduced, you know, and we'll have opportunities for, for people to purchase water from other water users and so forth. But, but we're treating all uses the same. It's just that agriculture and irrigation is the dominant use. So that's most of the people here. But they have junior water rights. Um, junior to Covira, that's right. 93% of the water rights in the basin are junior to Covira. And basically, it's up to Covira to protect its water rights by asking for you to step in as chief engineer and say, all right, this is the plan going forward, and you're bound by statute, right? Yeah, I have a duty uh, under statute to prevent junior appropriators from interfering with the use of a senior appropriator, so that's, that's my job. Now, we don't go out looking for impairment. It, it's the water user that believes they're impaired, they have to come to us and ask us to investigate. And, and then if we find impairment, they actually have to file a sheet of paper to say, yes, I want you to administer the junior right or the senior use. So, so we did the investigation. We found impairment. They filed the request to secure water the last two years. They actually are they, they're delaying taking that step for next year to give this opportunity to try and work out another solution. Well, we've we've essentially dictated, we believe an augmentation of this project combined with this level of reduction should should prevent impairment for a generation. Like I said, there was a lot of, of concern because ag is going to be taking the brunt of this. But as you explained, your hands are tied, right? Why is the statute written that way? Why is it interpreted that way? Well, really all Western water law is written first in time, first in right is just the, it's how water is done in the West. And it's, it's, it's designed to protect people who invest in irrigation systems or whatever from having somebody subsequently come behind them and take their water supply. I mean, that's, 
it, it, it actually, I think, is founded in mining laws where somebody had water for mining and then somebody went upstream and uh, took a diversion of their water. So that's just the... That's just the principle of water law in the West. And it doesn't matter if you're an agricultural use or if you're a municipal use. If you're junior and the senior water right is being impaired and they file a claim, your hands are tied. Yeah, it's my duty to, to administer. And, we, and again, we do that routinely in, in surface water systems in the east and center parts. I mean, that's just everybody knows that. It, it is much more complicated in these groundwater surface water systems but but uh, the law still provides that that I need to act when uh, impairment is found and demonstrated and that that person says yes I want to be protected so now you've spent the last two years working with groundwater management district number five correct that's correct and there there was some back and forth why did those things stall what was the what was the point that we just couldn't get over well so they agreed to sort of the, the basic elements. They want to build augmentation. They really don't want to do reductions, but they understand that's a part of the, the issue. Uh, they wanted to remove end guns as a corrective control in the local enhanced management area, but not have any measurement of whether that's actually accomplishing the reductions or not, and not have any accountability if the reductions didn't occur to make it happen. So it's really not... Um, so we were looking for something that was binding so we can tell the service that this, this bundle of activities is, is satisfying the impairment and they, they just, just wouldn't commit to it in the plan. There's a way to, I mean, every water user reports how much they're using. So what we wanted was some overall accountability to say, to have the water use records reflect the reduced use. There was a, there was a, a federal program with the acronym AWEP that took off end guns about 2010. Uh, we looked at the water use records of those, there was about 45 of them within this area, and compared them to their neighbors and to see how much water taking the end guns off saved. And we found it didn't save any. And that's because there wasn't a requirement to, to, to save water. It was just a requirement to take off the end guns. So now I have a half an inch or more I can put on the circle and grow a longer season corn. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure why, but um, that illustrates that just removing end guns doesn't lead to a 10% reduction in water use as they were alleging. So we just wanted, show us, show us the reductions actually occurred, if they did. End guns can save water, but you have to, you have, to have some accountability. Otherwise, they're gonna find another way to use that water. So any other thoughts, whether it's about your job by statute and what you guys have to do, the hydrology of the area? Um, you had a lot of questions here today. Were there some surprising questions? You know, we've, we've been working with the basin a lot over the last three years. I don't know that there were any particularly surprising questions. I mean, we, um, I, I, can't, I can't recall a shocking <laughs> question, I'm afraid. We, we, we believe we pretty thoughtfully considered the GMD's data, but I mean, we've been going down this path for a long time and hearing, hearing a lot from people. So. Final thoughts? You know, we're, we're encouraged uh, that the, the, you know, there's one more opportunity to find a local solution. You know, we, we'd prefer it that way. 
you know, but a solution's not going to be easy. The, the locals may tweak our plans, but we still got to get it done. So, but but uh, we'd, we'd certainly appreciate the opportunity to sort of try again and see if we can get there. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So we are with Brian Dunn, whose family raises pigs um, here at St. John, Kansas. Brian, you are one of the many people that would be impacted by this this impact zone um, for the, the water rights here for Quiver Refuge. What does this mean to your family operation? Why were you here tonight to gather more information? Well, we've been trying to keep track of this process from the beginning. Uh, we're right in the heart of what they call Zone C. We're close to Rattlesnake Creek. All the irrigation that we have and our livestock operations, not only pigs and cattle, are fall within Zone C. So we're quite concerned when we got a letter here three weeks ago that we were going to be cut 35% on our irrigation water and 50% on our water for our swine operation. And that was going to go into effect at the end of the year if Quivira called for their water. So all of a sudden, our whole operational plans would have to change because what do you do with a sow herd that you can't water? What do you do with them? We'd fall out of our production system because then we couldn't supply the amount of pigs that we need to for the production system that we're into. And so all of a sudden, my brother-in-law who heads that up and the employees that help him would change the scope of their lives uh, due to this administrative action. So it was very concerning to us. Uh, what our future holds. I have three young boys that hopefully someday could return to the farm. All of a sudden, this changes that trajectory. We're looking at expansion in, in our cattle operation at some point, which would take water. If we can't secure water for that operation, it changes our you know our future of farming. So it has weighed very heavy on our hearts and our minds for several years now, knowing that this was going to impact us. We saw in writing how it would impact us. Uh, very pleased that Moran uh, spoke with the deputy secretary or whatever that person was in D.C. here recently with U.S. Fish and Wildlife may relieve this for a moment. Um, our GMD-5 has worked hard on Lima proposals that have all been rejected. And so we're continually monitoring this, but we're glad that maybe we've got a reprieve, that we can continue to come to the table, find some solutions that doesn't end us economically in our community, um, ends our farming operation or changes it drastically uh, that we don't know the answers are. And it's pretty hard to change a 50-year-old operation in three months. Okay, so a lot of folks have seen this coming down the pike for a couple years now, and you are some of the most progressive people I know in the livestock industry. What have you guys been doing as far as production just to, just to conserve water already? I mean, that's a good thing, right, that to conserve water in your regular production methods. Uh, every, every water is, is it's costly to, to pull up out of the ground, so it's, it's something that you probably work toward. When my granddad started irrigating in the 60s, it was flood irrigation. We've gone away from flood irrigation. We've gone away from uh, nozzles on top to pivot to drops. Um, in the area, there's people who have gone to drip tape, trying to experiment with that and see if that can be successful in our sandy soils and with the rodent problem. We're continuing to look at options. We've, we irrigate differently today than we did 40 years ago, even 10 years ago, with crop consultants consulting us, aerial maps, satellite maps on how we can best utilize that water that we just are using the amount that we absolutely need on those crops. Um, because every time I turn on an irrigation pivot, 
I, it concerns me because I want to use it for the best beneficial use um, for that. Livestock's a different deal. An animal's going to drink a certain amount of water every day, so it's not like you can turn that off. We can make animals more efficient, but you're not going to change their water usage by much. So that's one that's not very easy to control. Of course, all the wastewater we uh, put back on the land, you know, we're trying to utilize that water again, but there's differences in, in, in that animal environment. And so we're looking at, you know, continual ways to improve that. And there, there are technologies that will continue to come that my kids will see that I won't, can't even imagine. The matter of fact is if we can afford them at some point, and I think we will, but it'll take some time. But those are pretty exciting what could be down the road if we still have the water to irrigate with. You're a native of Stafford County in this area. You've seen a lot over the years. You know specifics of living and working here. What else is there besides agriculture that can use this water? I mean, there was a lot of, of questions tonight about, you know, we, we don't, or questions and answers about, we don't put agriculture above everybody else. It's just senior versus junior water rights and that sort of thing. But as a local person, what else is there that, that helps the community economically? I mean. No, there's been some studies on, on the impact if we lose water. And I forget the millions of dollars that it would take from our economy, but there's nothing else that we can bring to Stafford County that'll regenerate those types of dollars, no business or industry. We've got to keep what's here healthy and functional. And so that's why it's so near and dear to our heart, because we're an ag-based community. Um, you know, there is some oil production, but ag pays a lot of the bills here. We just have a new grocery store this last year, and we don't want that to go away because we work so hard to get that in our local community. And you start taking people out of, the, out of the community, and that's pretty serious. And an example is even our flour mill here is our crown jewel of Hudson, Kansas, the Stafford County Flour Mill. This will affects them and the amount of water that they can use. You know, they're looking at expansion somewhere down the road, but will that expansion be able to happen now because their water rights were cut just like everybody else's? And so it didn't matter if you're a business or agriculture, everybody was cut. There was even a fire department south of here that was, their water rights were cut. So I guess you want your house to burn in the first half of the year that you have water to put it out and not the second half. You know, things like that that start to, to concern you down the road. And those are extreme uh, cases, but at the same time it will not bolster our economy and i don't know what else we'll find to replace the kind of dollars that agriculture generates in this community and county so if you had somebody from outside of agriculture outside of kansas somebody that was saying that would say okay it's it's a wildlife refuge they have seniority they were there forever and a day before and you could sit down and talk with them what what would be your final thoughts to any of these outside interests that are looking at this with different eyes or different point of views how would you I don't know how would you communicate with them just how critical it is that we figure out this voluntary answer and it's a voluntary solution that that tries to get the most for everybody involved you know this wildlife was here long before any of us were and that wildlife refuge was uh, had been farm ground at one point and had been agricultural ground had had cows grazing on it it was part of this community and can still be part of this community. There, there's no reason we can't work together and find a solution that doesn't break all of us. Um, you know, there's important birds that come through that wildlife refuge, but at the same time, there's important people in our community that are making a livelihood. And so how do you balance that? And it comes down to water, water rights, first in time, first in right, and we can have those arguments, but in the end of the day, 
what is going to keep this area open? If there's nobody here, who's going to stay? Where are they going to stay in the motels or the facilities around here if we continue to decline in services uh, to come visit the wildlife refuge? And I think there's ways to work that out because if you truly look, a lot of this agricultural ground of the irrigation pivots and farm ground around here support a lot of the life of the wildlife that actually flies out of Quivira, lands on the farm fields, feeds there, and then goes back at night to Quivira. So it's not like agriculture isn't a major component of the, life, or the wildlife migration through this area. Any final thoughts? No, I think it's just a, a really big issue with, it's kind of like an octopus. It's got so many tentacles, you don't know how to handle it. Everybody's really frustrated at the point, you know, discouraged to some degree of what we could see could happen to our communities, um, you know, what takes place. And so it's an issue that is causing a lot of, you know, grief and stress and our people in our community and, and the what ifs, and we don't know what the what ifs are yet. And we hope that we can come to a solution that doesn't, uh, in the communities that we live in and we enjoy to be around and the agriculture industry is important in the Kansas economy at the same time that we, we do what we need to do as good American citizens. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. We are with Greg Krisick with Kansas Corn. What are some of corn farmers' concerns when it comes to Quivera impairing, or Quivera's um, water rights and, and uh, the potential to shut off wells? Well, Jenny, as you might expect, if anything is going to impact corn production in the state and producers ability uh, and flexibility to grow which can include their water rights irrigation uh, uh, having irrigated land versus dry land um, we're going to have an interest in it um, to help them um, you know i'm cautiously heartened uh, to hear that the dwr has responded basically to Senator Moran's news release indicating that the Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't intend to request any administration of the water right and that therefore more time and more of a process, which I'm not sure I know what that process is yet, um, might be to develop a local solution. We think in our resolutions, our policies, always if there is local um, governance, especially of the water right issues, that's very, very important. So that may be a, a different direction than I expected when I walked in the door here today. We are in the St. John area. We are just uh, west of Hutchinson. Um, we're in uh, Stafford County. How much corn is actually produced here and how much corn is in that impact zone or in those zones that would be, um, would be impacted? You know, when you look, especially at the irrigated acres in this area, um, the corn production has grown, uh, become more common. Um, I work with a number of corn leaders uh, who especially have uh, and report always good irrigated yields. So um, it's, a, it's been a growing area. Um, there continues to be new, another new ethanol plant. Um, in Colwich, and there's one in Lyons and one in Pratt. So this area has become important for that, as well as the longtime uh, beef cattle industry. So it's an important area to us. Uh, we have this pause. What do you hope going forward your members will, will kind of work towards? Um, is augmentation and, and, and reduction in pumping, is that something that they can work with? Or are, is there something else that your members have thought of or maybe thinking of? We have relationships, uh, the State Association has relationships with a couple of different groups here, um, Waterpack and several of its board members, uh, several of the board members on the GMD board, um, and as they are 
evaluating a local, another, you know, maybe the next iteration of a local proposal, we are trying to serve as a resource uh, for potentially um, federal programs or dollars that especially could help with some of the costs around augmentation. Um, we're investigating that and having opening conversations with those leaders to say, can we connect some resources with you that might uh, help as they uh, try to see what it would cost and how long it might take to implement um, a plan, which hopefully a coalition can come together and agree upon. Okay, so we are with Kelsey Olson, Assistant Secretary for Kansas Department of Agriculture. So we've had, this is the second of two meetings today, and it's packed houses for both. You know, my dad used to say, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. So <laughs> there were a lot of folks in the first meeting that were very concerned. Well, so I think one of the first things to mention is that, I mean, we have been working with the service since 1993, and I don't know if we have ever had this level of engagement from um, as many water right users and from the community as, as a whole. So I think that's very promising in regards to getting the right people at the table to have a conversation right now. Um, and there's an urgency because we see what an administrative order could look like if we had to go that route. But I think I think this is different. I think it's it, we're at a new point and I think that we're ready to, to make sure that there's more conversation coming out and we can, you know, take some viable options and find a way forward that is is locally driven. So by statute, chief engineer's hands are tied. It is the way it is. Maybe explain to folks when they don't understand why is the chief engineer's hands, why are they tied the way they are? So the Division of Water Resources is overseen by the chief engineer and he is put in place by statute, by law, based on the Kansas Water Appropriation Act of 1945. Um, that was the first time in Kansas history where we, um, as a state, wanted to move forward with obtaining permits and first in line was the first right to the water and so from there on out the chief engineer's role has always been to administer those water rights and allow for them when there's the opportunity and then if there's ever an impairment or a lack of water for a water right user um, it's the chief engineer's role to um, address that impairment and to find a way forward. If it is gets to the point where he has to engage at that level, then it is um, his his orders by law to um, enforce a water right. Uh, from one water right, it doesn't matter what the use of water is, um, but if your neighbor is impairing you, then he's going to step in and help mitigate if it can't be done. He's, he's like a referee. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, anything else you want folks to understand or where they can find more information about this and, and where they can bring their concerns to if they weren't able to come to this meeting? Sure. So we have a local Stafford uh, water office that is a great resource to come in and have address individual water right questions. You're always welcome to call the Kansas Department of Agriculture um, directly and, and speak to myself or to anyone else in the Division of Water Resources. Thank you so very much, Assistant Secretary Olson. And um, for more on this, you can always follow along online at www.hpj.com. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Ag Resources on October 15th. Corn was down at $3.83. Wheat was up at $3.66. Milo was down at $3.28, and soybeans were up at $8.15.
If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters at our website, hpj.com signup. Simply select the topics that interest you, and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Next week's print issue of High Plains Journal has a cover story on ag research and technology from web editor Shauna Rumbaugh. Be sure to watch for that in your mailboxes October 28th and look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcasts. You can also find us on places like iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. We're also on Instagram. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again for riding along with us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember... As Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. This has been a production of High Plains Journal, all rights reserved. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends.